Welcome to the Invictus Church Podcast. We're grateful that you've chosen to listen, and we want to invite you to join us each week as we upload new content. Our prayer each week is that those who listen in would not just be stirred or inspired, but also changed. Now, get ready for life change with this week's message from Invictus Church. Hey, Invictus Church, Alan Danielson, your lead pastor here, and I'm off this weekend. I don't get a lot of Sundays off, but uh, I'm gone this weekend, and I am really excited about what we have for you today. A friend of mine named Matt Johnson is going to be sharing God's Word with you today, and Matt is an experienced leader, a great pastor, a phenomenal Bible teacher, a guy who has made a big difference in lots and lots of churches, a guy I trust and a guy I believe in, and I'm super excited to introduce him to you today. So when he gets up here to share in just a couple of moments, I want you guys to give him a huge round of applause, a big Invictus welcome, as Matt Johnson brings to you week three of our series, The F Word. So I get to be the pastor to bring week three of The F Word, and uh, this is an awesome series. I love the creativity of it, and Uh, I want to just get some awkwardness out of the way as we talk about a series called The F Word. So we're going to have a little bit of a show of hands, and I want to just ask the the question, how many of you have said, why God? Not the F Word. I won't do that. That would be awkward. How many of you have said, why God, before? Like, how many of you have asked that question? Awesome. So I see some hands. The the people that didn't raise their hands are really going to be challenged by next sermon series on honesty. Uh, because I think we all, at some point, have asked God the, the question, why, before, right? If you haven't, one of, one of two things may be happening. Either uh, you're just not telling yourself the truth, uh, or you uh, haven't experienced anything bad in your life. Probably not likely to happen, right? We all ask God the, the why question at some point. Maybe the why question is, God, why did this happened to me. Maybe the question is, God, why didn't this happen to me? Maybe it's, God, why did you give them that? Or why did you do this to them? Why, why, why? And we ask God this question as if we expect an answer, right? I mean, we, we in our heart of hearts want to know why. We want to know the motives of God's choice-making process as he, in his sovereignty, allows things to happen or works in our lives. And we ask the question, why? There's a a chart that psychologists use uh, as they work with kids. It's called the Adverse Child Experience Scale. And I'm actually going to put it up. I want you to take a look at this. And as, as people work with kids, they ask kids 10 questions, one for each of these. Have you experienced one of these things in your life? And so... There's things on there from physical or emotional or sexual abuse, physical or emotional neglect, uh, in someone in your home experiencing mental illness, incarceration, of violence to your mom, is there substance abuse, have you been divorced? And they land on these things and they call these things traumatic events. We like to say that that's just life, right? But those are traumatic events And they don't go away easily. The latest latest research that I saw says that 88% 
of adolescents in our world now under the age of 18 have experienced at least one of these. 88%. 25% of adolescents in our world today have experienced three or more. It's the very thing that makes us go, why, God? Why? And we, we want answers, but oftentimes the, the answers that we get or the responses that we feel seem hollow. And we get trite Christian responses of, well, just pray about it, it'll get better. But these things don't go away easily, do they? And those are traumas, but man, you could throw so many other things in there like the loss of a job or your house, you know, some major house catastrophe or a flood or a fire or your car breaks down and before you know it, trauma just piles up and there's the saying that when it rains, it pours and some of you are wondering, when is it gonna stop raining? So as we think about what this series looks like and we process forgiveness, I think that a couple things can happen to us when we face these things. Some of you may be uh, Christians in the room and as you've experienced these things, you've asked the why God question and you haven't gotten in some way the answer that you wanted. And so the response that's most common and that's the easiest, whether it's intentional or not, is simply for our hearts to be hardened. And we build up calluses on our hearts that say, well, God didn't do this the way I wanted or God didn't answer that prayer the way I wanted. He didn't give me a, a proper response to the why question on this. And so I'm still a believer because I still want to go to heaven, but I'm just going to let this harden up a little bit. So you continue to do the religious activities that you're supposed to do, but you lose the softness to God that you once had. Maybe some of you are non-believers and your experiences and things on this chart are the very reason that you can't bring yourself to accept God. Because in the moments of why God, when you look at those and you know that you or someone you love has experienced those things, you can't, you can't rationalize that together with a God that the church says is all loving and all caring and forgiving and, and then the experiences of the people that you love or yourself. So we're left with this why God question over and over and over again. If anybody understood the why God concept, it's a guy in the Old Testament named Job. Job is a book in the Old Testament. It's probably one of the very first books of the Bible that was written. And Job is simply a story of a guy that if he were a modern Christian would be like a rock star. He would be like the equivalent of the pastor that never sinned, like that happens. But he would be the equivalent of like the rock star churchgoer. He tithes, he serves, his kids all love Jesus and don't do drugs, they're great kids, right? He had it all together. So God and Jesus, or excuse me, God and Satan have this interaction and Satan says, well, what about this guy Moses? He seems to really like you, but I think he only likes you because you've given him a lot of stuff. And God says, no, I'm pretty sure that he likes me because of who I am. Amen. And so God gives him the freedom to interact in Job's life. And in a matter of just a few days, Job loses everything. His kids pass away. His wife leaves him and passes away. He loses all of his livestock. He loses his home. He's left with nothing. His life is in shambles. 
And he asks this why God question in a matter of sorts over and over again. And so the majority of the book of Job is a conversation between Job and three of his friends. And his three friends come to him, and as good Christian brothers and sisters, they come to him and point the finger and say, you screwed up. Right? That's what Christians do. Unfortunately, that's the stereotype that we have. Job says, I didn't sin. This isn't on me. But Job keeps asking this why God question. It's like he, he has this idea that, man, if I could just get God's ear, like if I could just get in front of God and plead my case, then we could figure this whole thing out and we could make this all better. But God must not understand or God must have made a mistake. But if I could just ask God the why question, we could fix this. So it's with all this in mind that, that Pastor Allen calls me and says, I want you to preach on the idea of forgiving God as we continue this F-word series. And I thought about that at first, and I was like, yeah, that's great, I can do that. And then I started to read and think and pray a little bit more, and I realized, man, Alan really stuck me with one. <laughs> because the idea of forgiving God is not this simple concept that we can just go, yeah, I forgive God, everything's roses now, this is great. As I began to pray about it and think about it and dig into it, I, I realized that the concept of forgiving God is flawed because there's this implication somehow that, that God has done wrong and he owed, we owe him our forgiveness. As if he has messed up in our lives and we have the ability to, in some sense, lord our forgiveness over him and say, God, I forgive you. I let you off the hook. You screwed up but I'm gonna let that pass. So as we think about this idea of forgiving God, I want us to let go of the idea that we can forgive God. As if God needs or deserves our forgiveness. Instead, what I wanna think about as we walk through this process is This phrase, this concept that I want to keep coming back to, and it's simply this, forgiving God is an emotional band-aid on a deep spiritual wound. What we really need is spiritual healing. If you're around me much at all in ministry, uh, one of the soapboxes that I like to carry around is this phrase called, get God right. And I will regularly talk on the idea in small groups and in one-on-one conversations and when I get the chance to preach that if we could just get God right, everything else would kind of fall into place. It doesn't take much to look around the world around us and other uh, religions to realize that when you get God wrong, everything kind of falls apart. And so if you have the idea in your mind that maybe God isn't graceful or forgiving, then you get a really religious, legalistic perspective of faith, and everything kind of falls out of that view that God really isn't gracious or forgiving. Or maybe you have the view that Jesus was just kind of a good guy, but he wasn't really part of the Trinity, and so all of your perspective on who Jesus is kind of falls apart because you don't get God right. So there's a big kind of churchy word called theology that is just theology, which literally means how you think about God. 
the framework of what it looks like as you put your belief system together about God. And our theology is built on a foundation of who we believe God's character is and what he is like. And everything else that's built on top of that will rise or fall based on the the foundation of what you believe to be true about God. So as we talk about this idea of getting God right, one of the things that I want you to process is that as we ask these why questions, as we think about what it looks like to forgive God and then even to let go of forgiving God, I want you to think about this. We can let our experiences shape our theology or we can let our theology shape our experiences. But it has to be one or the other, right? Too often, I think that we let the experiences of our life shape how we view God instead of letting how we view God shape the things that happen to us and the experiences that we have. But it's really easy in that process to to get out of whack, right? And so uh, as much as we would love for it to be spring, one of the problems with spring is also that it's gray outside about 90% of the time in the rain of the season that we get. And it would be really easy to walk outside and and see gray and not see the sun and go, man, this sucks. Like the sun is never going to come out again. And our experience would shape what we believe to be true about the sun instead of having the knowledge of humanity to go, hey, the sun's up and down every single day, maybe it's behind the cloud, there's a greater way to explain the experience we have, right? It's not just, we can't see the sun, it must be gone, the sky is falling. And yet in our lives, when we have these woe is me, why God moments, we can't see past that to what we believe. And so as we process through this, I want to help you think through what it looks like to get God right in the midst of this idea of forgiveness, in the midst of this idea of processing pain and hurt and challenges in our life. And as you process these things, what I think is most important is that we reset our perspective on God. One of the most common questions that people ask in those why God moments is, God, where are you? Where are you? It's like glass, right? Like it just echoes back when we cry out. The first reset of our perspective of God is that I want to remind you that God is present. A couple of scriptures says Moses is talking to God, which automatically has some indication that God is present. God has made himself available to Moses in a personal way that's not common in the Old Testament, but common now in our availability through the Holy Spirit. But, but in Exodus, God and Moses are having this conversation. Exodus 33, Moses says, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me or on me and your people if you don't go with us. For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all the other people of the earth. Then you flip over to the New Testament in Acts. Paul is preaching to a group of people that are non-believers that are really religious but don't understand who God is. And as he's preaching to them, he says this. He says, his purpose, speaking of God, was for the nations to seek after God 
and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. This, I love this. Though he is not far away from any of us. For in him we live and we exist and we move and we exist. And then great preaching here. Paul references the culture of the day. He says, as some of your very own poets have said, we are his offspring. Since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. You as believers or people here that maybe aren't believers but are at least trying to figure this God thing out are not the only people in the world that have why God moments. But as Moses highlights and reminds us, it's the very presence of God with us in those moments that changes things. That, that the very presence of the creator of the universe is with you and helps you to stand out in the midst of the challenges that you face. And then as you flip to the New Testament and Paul preaches this, Paul says God's not far away even in the midst of the, the challenges and the trials and the struggles. God is still close. Actually, God's not just close. You exist in God's presence. That the, the very Uh, life you live and the way you move and exist isn't just near him, it's in him. Paul goes on to say that God's not supposed to be treated like some idol, not some static, stable, in one place, physical property being that you go to transactionally to get what you want. No, instead, Paul is saying that you guys worship this idol and you come here hoping that you get a blessing from him and you do all these things for him, but you don't have to do that. God is with you constantly. But as I process through these why God moments and I think about the reality of resetting my perspective that God's presence is always with me, I keep coming back to a question that I would love for you to think about today. And the question is simply this, do I desire God's presence in the good times as much as I want him to be present in the crappy times. Because the reality is that he's there all the time. He's not simply a, a, a slot machine in heaven that we pull the dial when life is tough and hope that we win big. No, he's with you constantly. His presence is the very thing that sustains you even now. As we reset our perspective on God, not only do we ask the question, where are you, and we remind each other that God is present, we commonly ask the question, God, do you even care? Do you care? Maybe you're here, that's great, thanks. Do you care? I think we have to reset our perspective on God to remind ourselves and remind each other that God is loving An Old Testament prophet, Zephaniah, says this. He said, for the Lord your God is living among you. Again, he's present. He's here. He is a mighty savior. He will take delight with you, in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all of your fears, and he will rejoice over you with joyful song. With his love, he can calm your fears. And then I love this in Romans 5. Romans is an amazing, amazing book of the Bible, and in Romans 5, the writer says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. 
If that's not love, I, I don't know what is. Because I, if that was my kid, I, I would wait till you were good enough to receive him before I would send him to die. And that's not what God does. While you were still sinners, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for us. As I'm thinking about resetting my perspective on the reality that God is loving, I'm, I'm regularly reminded of the challenges of being a parent. I have a couple little kids, and uh, for some reason, maybe you can relate to this as parents, for some reason, nail trimming is like World War III in my house. It is chaos. And so I don't understand it, but my five-year-old little girl takes it like a champ, and she just holds her hand out like nonchalant, like whatever you got to do, do it and it's done. But my seven-year-old son uh, fights it tooth and nail every step of the way. And so the minute that the clippers come out, the tears start to roll, and it's just drama for 45 minutes. It's, those are the nights that I pray that I have something to do, and my wife takes care of that, but unfortunately that doesn't happen. So in the nail trimming process with my son, oftentimes as we're trimming his nails, because it is the right thing to do for his well-being out of the love of being a parent, he fights us. And so instead of just holding his hand out and letting us do what needs to be done, he white knuckles the whole thing with both his hands and his toes. And if you can think through this, it is painful to have your white knuckles peeled back, right? And yet the very thing out of love that we're doing to care for him inflicts pain in him in some way. And he gets ticked at us and he says that we're hurting him when the reality is he is causing the hurt himself. Now maybe you can relate to me in this as well. As a parent, there have been moments where I'm in the middle of saying something condescending to my son and immediately I hear God in my head go, yeah, that's for you too. Maybe you've never been there. Maybe you are a better parent than me. But when I have those moments of frustration with my kid, God regularly reminds me that I am the exact same way with him. And so oftentimes the very thing that God is trying to do in my life to love me, I fight. And in the process, I hurt myself. Not because God is trying to inflict pain on me, but because I am white-knuckling whatever he's trying to do, and he has to peel it back. And it's uncomfortable. It's painful. Now, I'm, I'm not naive enough to believe that every painful thing in your life is God loving you. We live in a fallen, broken world, and other people's sin hurts us sometimes. But many times in our lives, the very thing that God is trying to do to love you, you are fighting back and it feels like pain. And you end up asking why God moments because you hurt. But you don't get the parental perspective to see the bigger picture, right? And so I've tried to... Like this works, I've tried to rationally explain things to a seven-year-old about how if your nails grow too long, they'll curve under and they'll start to cut back into your skin. And I try to explain to him the reason that it all needs to happen. And yet in his mind, all he experiences is fear and pain, right? 
There are many times when we ask God why God moments, and God may even try to explain himself to you, and we're just not capable of comprehending. And at the end of the day, what we need to do is not try to figure out why, but figure out how to let go enough to let God do what he's going to do. And so as I process this, as I think about what it looks like to reset our perspective on God and his character, I wonder what God may be loving you through right now that hurts because you're fighting instead of cooperating. So we reset our perspective on God. The last thing, the common question that people get is, we ask God, are you here? God, are you gonna do anything? And then, uh, or, you know, God, are you, are you active? And then the last one is, God, are you gonna do anything? Okay, you're here, you love me, when are you going to act? Like, when's the knight in shining armor going to ride in and fix this thing? Jesus puts it pretty simply in John five seventeen. He says, Jesus replied in the middle of this conversation, he says, my father is always working and so am I. Romans eight twenty eight. we sang this today, but do you believe it? We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. We sing the lyrics, and yet often we sing them with hard hearts and we're just religiously processing words on a screen. And so in the middle of the why God moments, we ask God, are you gonna do anything? And over and over again in scripture, we see that God is active, that God is at work, In our bitterness and our frustration, we may read that passage and we may stop at the word causes. And we know that God causes. And we stop and we're like, ha, I knew it. He doesn't love me. Look at all the crap that's happened in my life. He caused it. But if we would just read a little further, God causes everything to work together. And so, as only God can do, even the challenges that you experience in life, God can mold and shape together in a way that not only brings him glory, but is for your good. It can be really easy in the midst of these why God moments to have a myopic perspective. And I oftentimes get this mental image of a cyclops that you see like in sci-fi movies with this massive giant singular eye with a mirror right in front. And that's all we can see is our own pain, our own frustrations, our own challenges. But if we could just shift it a little bit to, to release the reflection back in a way that we could see God well, then I think maybe we could shift the question just a little bit from from a why God question to a what God question. We ask God why over and over again and we want answers about his motives as if those would satisfy, but what is really actually helpful in our life is not to ask God why, but to ask God what. God, what are you doing here? God, what is going to come out of this for my good? God, what are you trying to teach me here? God, what do you want to do through this in me for other people? If we could get past the why to get to the what, we would have a better perspective of God. You know, the the end of the book of Jonah comes to this, this point where 
or excuse me, not Jonah, Job, comes to this point where, where Job is like frustrated and he just keeps at like, man, if I could just get to God, if I could just get to God. And finally God shows up and goes, you better brace yourself. You want to know why I do the things that I do? Let me tell you a little bit about me. Were you there when I formed the oceans? Were you there when I made the snow? Were you there when my might and my power and my authority was exhibited? Job got a perspective reset quickly in the presence of God. And you know what I find interesting is that in the middle of all of that, Job never gets an answer. God never tells him why. That would tick me off so much. And yet the the very reset of the presence and the perspective of who God is took the question away. It no longer mattered. All of this comes to a tipping point for me in my heart and in my mind. And the tipping point is simply this. Do you trust God? Do you trust him? Because your your level of trust with God will change your perspective on how you view him and his role in your life. You know, I find it interesting that uh, as Christians, especially we say that we trust God with our salvation. That we rely on God to do the very thing that we cannot do, which is to fix our sins and make a way for us to get to heaven to spend eternity with him, right? We trust him in that. That's like the foundation of who we are as believers in Jesus. Jesus has this conversation in Matthew 9 because Jesus is getting ready to to heal someone, and Jesus says to this lame cripple, uh, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees freak out. They're like, who are you to say that? You can't say that. And saying you can't say that to Jesus doesn't end well, but they haven't figured that out yet. So they say, you can't say that. Who are you to say that to this man? Jesus replies, he says this, He says, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier to say stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man, Jesus, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and he said, stand up, pick up your mat, go home. Jesus has this confrontation and they're like, you can't tell him your sins are forgiven? And Jesus is like, okay, Which is harder in this process, for me to heal this guy or to forgive his sins? And the the assumption, based on Jesus' response, is that it would be harder to heal the paralyzed than to forgive sin. And Jesus says, okay, if that's what it is, then I'm going to heal this to prove that I can do that. So he heals the man, and the man gets up and walks away, and the, the reality is surely if he could heal that guy's physical brokenness, he could also take care of his spiritual brokenness. Right? And somehow in our lives, over 2,000 years of separation between us and Jesus walking in this earth, we have gotten this backwards. And we believe that Jesus is capable of forgiving us for our sins and fixing us spiritually, but we think he is totally inept and incapable of fixing us physically 
in the here and the now of the traumas of our life. And so we ask why God moments because at the end of the day, we don't trust him. We trust him with the abstract, but we don't trust him with the practical. But God's not an abstract God. God wants to heal you, not just spiritually for eternity, but physically, spiritually, emotionally, now. Do you trust him? Do you trust him not with, just with your eternity, but with your now? Because now matters for eternity. Matthew says this in Matthew 11, excuse me, Jesus says this. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden that I give you is light. In the middle of a bunch of why God questions and the challenges of life, it can feel like a million pounds on your shoulders. And Jesus simply says, come to me. Let me take the weight that you carry and give you mine instead. And it's light and it's easy and in the middle of it you will find rest because life will make you weary. Forgiving God is an emotional band-aid on a deep spiritual wound. What we need is spiritual healing, and spiritual healing comes when you get an accurate perspective of God's character. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the Invictus Church Podcast. Be sure to tune in every week for more new content. We'd like to invite you to join us in person for our weekend worship services. To get more information about our meeting times and location, please visit us online at www.invictus.church. If this or any of our episodes have inspired you to take steps in your relationship with Jesus, please let us know by sending us a note at info at invictus.church. We would love to hear how our message has helped change your life. Also, if our podcast has been meaningful for you and you'd like to give financially to our ministry, you can easily make your contribution online at www.invictus.church. Thanks one more time for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week.